you're listening to Frankly Kev. This is the Everyday Hero series, where I talk to people who have faced one or even more of life's many challenges. We talk about what happened, how they got through it, and what they did to survive, and maybe even thrive. On today's episode, The No BS Mama, my guest shares about the challenges of being married and having kids at a young age, balancing work with family life, responsibilities, communication, depression, anxiety, expectations, her own podcast, and much more. Please welcome my very special guest, Megan Edinger. You ready to dive in? I'm ready. Oh, awesome. All right. Well, we're going to start off easy, and then the questions get tougher as we go along. <laughs> I <knew> this, yeah. <laughs> That's like the $100,000 pyramid. <laughs> All right. So this is a three-parter. Where were you born? What was life like as a kid? And what did you want to be when you grew up? Yeah. So I was born and raised in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, um, Northeast Philly. Um, as a kid, I would say I was very shy and quiet unless I was in my own home. <laughs> then I was exactly <laughs> the opposite of those two things. <laughs> yeah. I was the oldest of five. So I was like the second mom in the house, essentially, uh, especially after my dad left when I was in sixth grade. So oh, dad left, mom so- had to go to work. Sorry, mom had to go to work. And then I was, you know, the default. So did you find that you had to grow up pretty quickly, fairly young and take over responsibilities of helping to run the household and look after your siblings? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. What were some major life events back then that you remember that they could be traumatic or whatever? And what are some of your best memories of your childhood? Yeah. Uh, such great questions. So definitely I would say my parents getting divorced when I was in middle school, um, that was a pretty big deal. Same. And then <laughs> yeah. you too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. all of my friends, it was like dominoes, right? Yeah. They, it all happened within like a year or two. And then the second thing that I would say was pretty life-changing was when I moved, um, when I was in 10th grade from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to Boyertown, Pennsylvania, Um, So it was about an hour away. So it wasn't too bad, but it was pre-social media. I didn't have a cell phone. So it was like leaving behind, you know, my childhood home, obviously, but then all of my friends, um, I mean, I know people move all the time, but for me, that was, that was rough. Devastating. Yeah. So did you end up taking a train back or get a car ride back to, to see them still? Um, not too much. My mom wasn't too fond of a lot of the friends that I had, uh, rightfully so now that I'm a mother. (laughs) (laughs) Were they a bad influence? Were they smoking in the back alley? A little bit. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and we had a lot of fun and I still keep in touch with a lot of them, but definitely understand why my mom wanted to create some distance there. Um, and then after I got, you know, my license, I was able to go back a few times, but nothing, you know, every time I went back, I got in trouble. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you were you were able somehow to find a way to to keep in touch once you got your license or or by phone with the ones that meant the most to you. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, but I'm sure it's devastating as a kid. Well, I I went through. Wait, I went through that too, kind of because 
we moved from one end of the city to the other. Uh, but we went to the same school, but then it's your whole neighborhood changes and all all the kids there and then going from private school to public school. And it's kind of, and you're, you're going from this very protected world. I, I was born and raised Jewish. I went to private Jewish school and then making the decision to go to a public school where it was like the, the U, suddenly it's the UN. It's not Israel, it's the UN. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is a culture shock associated. You know, um, the very first thing I noticed was the lack of diversity, um, you know, moving into a suburb like that. And then additionally, just, you know, these kids just lived in another world compared to where I came from. You know, their families were, um, on a different socioeconomic, uh, situation than I was coming from, um, very, you know, sometimes a little bit subtle, but noticeable for sure. Um, all right. Now we get into the hard hitting stuff. Now, why did you get married at the age of 18? Yeah. Um, so it was actually 20 that we decided to get married. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, (laughs) We graduated high school when we were 17. Well, Drew was 18. I was 17. And I was eight months pregnant at the time, seven, seven or eight months pregnant. When you graduated high school mm-hmm. and you were high, uh, you were like high school sweethearts. Yes. We met, uh, yeah. Junior year of high school. Sweet. And you're still together. We are. Yep. Yeah, we'll get into that later, but it's been quite a journey. Um, but yeah, it, it's funny because one of the first things I said to him when you know I shared with him that I was pregnant was, please do not ask me to marry you. Like we're too young. I had no interest in that. I really wanted him to like we were in the process of getting like our acceptance letters to the colleges that we were applying to. Um, and I told him, like, I do not ever like five, 10, 15 years from now, you will never look at me and say, I could have, but I didn't because you, um, so if I have to stay here with the baby by myself for a little while, while you go to school, then that I'm cool with that. But, um, you're not going to give up on, you know, what you had planned because of our situation. This is very mature of someone who, who is that, that age and very aware um, yeah, well, and you know, statistically we weren't going to make it anyway. Right. So <laughs> that was kind of my thought process back then. Like, um, the baby was going to have my last name. Drew was going to go away to college and, um, I didn't, I didn't have anything else figured out beyond that. So now this was an unplanned pregnancy mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you both decided to keep, but at that point in time, not get married, but did the conversation ever come up about abortion? I know this is a, a hot button topic, so if you please, if you don't want to answer it, we don't. You don't. We don't have to go there. But did it ever come up the, the abortion or even adoption? Yeah. Um, thank you for being so sensitive. I'm fine answering the question. Um, abortion was not right for me. Um, I completely support a woman's right to choose. I don't have, you know, any bad feelings against people who who do choose to go that route. For me, that was not ever a consideration or an option. Um, adoption was probably less of an option than abortion. I couldn't imagine because um, because I knew I had a support system that I wouldn't be 
totally alone. You know, if my you, you mean your family and friends mm -hmm. and your your boyfriend. Yeah. Very, very well. It makes all the difference in the world. It right. Can. You know, yeah. I knew I would have a place to live. <clears throat> I knew it wasn't going to be easy, but I knew that my family wouldn't let me and my baby like live on the street. So. You stayed in the nest. You stayed at home for the first, how long, couple of years or? Yeah. So interestingly enough, shortly after I found out that I was pregnant, um, my mom's job moved from Center City, Philadelphia to Wilmington, Delaware. And so they decided, my mom and my stepdad both worked at the same company. So they decided that they were going to take the package and move to Delaware and they ended up doing that the day that I graduated from high school. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I, yes. Um, initially, I was like, I'm going with them because I'm going to have a baby and I'm going to need my mom. Um, and Drew, you know, he was like, I don't want to be a part-time dad. Like, I need you to stay here with me. I need us to be a family here. So we spoke to his parents. His parents are also divorced. So he had his, his mom's house and his, his dad's house. Um, and for lots of reasons, we decided to stay with his dad. And so that was pretty much a culture shock because Drew would spend one week with his mom and then one week with his dad. So that within that, you know, summer, Drew's dad went from living alone with having Drew once or twice a month for a week to he got married to a woman who had a child who was in middle school. Drew was there full time and me and my baby were also there full time. <laughs> That's a huge change. That was a lot of within a matter of months, right? Yes. Uh like one month. They got married in May and then we moved in <laughs> in June. So that there were a lot of dynamics at play there. It was very interesting. Were your parents, Drew's parents and your parents, supportive of the pregnancy and your relationship? We were really lucky in the regard that um, at the time, my mom was very supportive and both of his parents were very supportive. Um, my father, not so much. He's come around now, but um, that, the, we had a rough patch there for a little bit. Um, and so, you know, they were all kind of of the mindset that Drew and I, had good heads on our shoulders and, you know, they voiced their opinions when they disagreed, but it was never, never anything that was, you know, going to divide the families. How many months were you pregnant when you graduated high school? So we graduated in June and I had him in August. So it was like seven. I was, I was pretty big. I was showing. What was the reaction of your fellow students and the teachers? Mm -hmm. I mean, did you have to deal with shit or I did. Oh. Um, so there was a girl that got pregnant um, in my same grade right before I did. And, you know, people were all over her. You know, her boyfriend didn't go to the school. She was, you know, she kept to herself. So there was a lot of, a lot of rumors about her. Um, and then someone found out that I was pregnant. Um, and then, you know, the whole school knew because you don't keep something like that a secret it's wildfire it goes <laughs> it's like everyone gets on the phone and by the next day everybody knows your business exactly and again back then there was no social media so it was no, like no. i don't i don't even know how the news traveled so fast but it went from like in the morning i got to school and everything was normal and then by lunchtime everyone knew yeah, yeah. um but i would say i'm sure that some people had some pretty you know not nice things to say but um 
I, I would say I did have a lot of support from friends and people that I was friendly with. So that helped you get through anything that was negative. Mm-hmm. Good, mm-hmm. good. Because I do remember that period and anyone who got pregnant in school was looked down upon. As as an adult now, I can, you know, I have a lot more compassion and understanding of somebody's situation. But back then, you know, it was, and it, it came from the elders. And so however your the elders react, that's kind of how the kids react. You, you know, it's, it's unconscious. You kind of learn that. And, you know, and people are looked down upon or, or do have to like change schools or just leave school to get away from it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there were a couple of things. First of all, Drew grew up there. Um, his family was well known in the community and people liked them. Uh, they knew that, you know, they were good people, a good family. And that still rings true everywhere we go, Drew. Everybody just loves Drew. Um, awesome. So I think that was helpful for me. Otherwise, I was already kind of like, ooh, that girl from Philly. Like, you know, I was an outsider. People, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the big city girl. Yeah, yeah. You know, people, when I first moved there, they'd ask me like, oh my God, you're from Philly. Have you ever seen anyone get shot? Or like crazy things. And it's so funny because now most of them live in the city, you know. Um, but back then it was like this, you only knew what you saw of it on the news. You were from the other side of the moon. Yeah. 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 Now, at what point did you get married and then move out on your own? So Drew, once we did, once um, we had the baby and I did give him Drew's last name because by the time I had the baby, I had decided that, you know, Drew wasn't going anywhere and if in the chance that he and I did not work out, he was definitely going to be an amazing father. And so. And in the kid's life. Yeah. Mm -hmm, For sure. For sure. So then, you know, after that, it's like, okay, well, we need to get our lives together. Like we need to get married. We need to buy a house. We need to do all these things because, you know, society says there are certain things you have to do. It's like a checkbox. We're doing it out of order, but you know, these are the things we need to do now. Um, but Drew was really funny. He refused to ask me to marry him until we moved out on our own. There was some stigma in his mind about, you know, it was bad enough that we had a baby. He didn't want to also be like married. The married couple living with the folks. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so we worked, you know, tirelessly. He, um, we were able to save up some money and eventually put a down payment on a house here in Delaware with you know, close to my family. And the night that we made settlement, he asked me to marry him. Oh, that's so sweet. Now this changed your plans though, having a baby because both of you were going to go to university or, and Mm -hmm. instead you went to go work, correct? Yeah. So remember I said, you know, I told Drew to, to go off to school. Yeah. <laughs> um, he decided he, at first he was like, well, okay, you come with me. We'll get an apartment. I'll go to school. Um, we'll raise the baby together. And I was like, that is not a great idea. Like <laughs> that is not going to work. Um, and so we, you know, we went through a lot of crazy ideas before we landed on, you know, we'll stay home. Uh, he went to work. I stayed home initially because the cost of childcare was outrageous. I couldn't, you know, I, I couldn't, I wasn't qualified for anything that would justify right. that expense or even cover yes. it for that matter. And so after the baby was about 
eight months old when I finally was able to find a job that was, that would pay for childcare and then some, and, you know, be worth it. And so we worked and we went to school at night. Our career paths changed a little bit. I wanted initially to be a teacher. That's what I was going to go to school for. And I ended up pretty close to it. I ended up in corporate training and development. So still kind of teaching, but not, not initially what I had thought of. And he initially wanted to be an accountant, um, which he has his master's degree in finance now. So it took us a lot longer than, you know, the rest of the people that we graduated with, but we did it. That's so amazing because taking the facts in front of you and not reacting just emotionally or in the moment and setting about a plan, adjusting your roadmap and and being patient and still working towards your goals, however long it takes. So kudos to you, both of you. Thank you. Yeah, it was, um, it was, I wouldn't say that we were super patient. (laughs) (laughs) It was, yeah, it was, um, you're honest, (laughs) you know, a lot of times, even like, I would say, even still, a lot of times we lose sight of the fact that we are, a good 10, 15, 20 years, sometimes younger than our kids' friends' parents. And so when you come, when it comes to like keeping up with the Joneses or being able to provide for our kids in the same type of way that their friends are living, my oldest, I would say, grew up in a very different way than his younger siblings. And I feel bad about that sometimes. Um, So when Timmy was growing up, I mean, they're all still like he's in high school and the other two are in middle school. What are their, there's, there's three there's kids, three now. correct? And yeah. what are their ages? So Timmy is 17. He's a senior in high school. Um, Nicholas is 13. He's a seventh grader and Katie is 11. She's a sixth grader. When Timmy was younger, I would say up until about that middle school age, our idea of a big vacation was, you know, four nights in the woods in a tent. Some families are very into camping. We, and, and we are, and we, we still are very into camping. We love it. But that was, that was it for the year. Um, you know, at, with the other two now, and to me, obviously he still participates, but like we've gone to Cancun for my brother's wedding. Um, they've had exposure to things that, he didn't necessarily get. Hopefully he understands. I mean, your positions have changed. Your income, your salary, your yearly salary has, has changed. Yeah. And he, we, he was at the beginning of it. Yeah. When he first got to high school, we had a lot of very interesting conversations, he and I, because I'm well aware that in high school, kids are experimenting, they're dating, they're, they might be having sex. Um, and I, struggled for a bit about approaching that conversation with him without making him feel like he was not wanted. You mean, sorry, the sex talk? Mm -hmm. Um, And so we would go, we would go for walks at night. We would walk the dogs together and these conversations would come up and, you know, we would have them very openly, um, you know, and as he, like I said, now he's a senior as he went through the grades, the grade levels and started to get closer and closer to where we were when we had him, I think it started, he started to become more aware of like, oh, wow. Like I always knew, but I never was able to like, really like understand what that meant. Right. Sure. Cause now he's at that age. 
oh, this is where my parents were in their relationship, and this is how far away they were from giving birth to me. Yeah. It's mind-blowing, I bet. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and also, we have conversations about, like, the future and what kind of job you might want to, like, when we talk about our kids and their plans for the future, we really want to make sure that we're talking about like, what do you value? What's important to you? Is time with your family really important to you? Because then you might be pursuing careers that might not pay you as much. And, you know, you have to be okay with that. Um, or is, you know, a big house and big vacations, like, are those things more important to you? Because you have to understand that you might have to give up some family time to achieve that kind of salary. And I'm off topic now. I forget where I was even going with that, but (laughs) (laughs) Uh, oh, because we were trying to help them understand, like, we want the best for you. And our, like, we eventually got where we wanted to go, but our path here was so much harder because of the choices that we made. Um, Like, for you, Timmy, we want you to be settled and situated and have lived some life before you start bringing more life into this world. And so those were those were touchy conversations, but I'm really glad that we've been able to have them. Well, which is very sound advice. And you and Drew just sound very grounded and, and, and mature and that you can, you know, and, and taking from your experiences and your mistakes and what you've learned and imparting that on your your kids now we only have so much control over what the kids do right they just take it and run with it or don't um but i mean this what you're telling me it just sounds one i mean one wonderful the conversations that you're having and the awareness that you're bringing to is it timmy Mm -hmm. well yeah i call him timmy his friends call him tim (laughs) tim tim now how far um your so your kids weren't like a at least from my generation i mean i think my mom got married at like 19 or 20 and then had my sister basically nine months later and me my brother my sister were like bang 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 that's how that's how you did it back in the 60s you got the kids out of the way yeah you know and we're all like from top to bottom we're just within three years of each other but you you've got about six years so it's you know, you had a little time off and a little time to to plan. And how did that how did that come about in terms of discussing how many kids you wanted and that you were uh, on the same on uh, on the same um, plane? And then you know the give and take of then okay okay now we add one more to the brood and. Uh, this is the time that that is going to take. And then now we're adding a third one. And, you know, I've, I'm still single. So, you know, managing money and managing the job and all of that. Sorry. I, I know this question is, I've kind of gone all over the place, but you get my gist, I do. Right? I do. Yeah. So a few things you should know. I, I know I already mentioned I'm the oldest of five. I was raised um, Irish Catholic. And so we were also all 18 to 24 months apart, um, as were all of my cousins and all of my aunts and uncles. So that is very much what I'm accustomed to. Drew is an only child and his family is very small. And um, even the family that he does have doesn't get together quite as often as my family does. That being said, Drew fits in really well with my family. He loves all of the 
craziness that comes with us. You know, some of it he could live without, I'm sure. But for the most part, he enjoys all of that. When Timmy was probably two, we we got married when he was about two years old. And then, like I said, we were living on our own and I got the itch real bad. Um, and I knew that it was not financially responsible. I knew that um, we could, we definitely couldn't afford another kid in daycare. I don't know how we would have cared for a, another child at that time with all, everything, like going to school and, and work. We were both in school pretty much full-time and working full-time. I knew like adding another one to the mix was not going to happen. And we had talked about having two or three kids. I was really pushing for like one more, but so what ended up, what we ended up doing was when we planned for Nicholas, it was one of those things where it was like, well, we can't, we can kind of afford it. It would be really tight, but then, you know, after a while, like we'll get raises and and then everything will like even out. And then Timmy will be in um, kindergarten and it will it'll be a lot easier to be able to afford this. So it was like, "Mm, the timing isn't perfect, but we think we could make it work. We're not going to try, but we're not going to be preventative either. Um, And I know that this is- You mean birth control. Birth control, exactly. Um, I know that there are lots of women who struggle with, you know, conceiving children and and carrying full term. Um, I'm not, I'm not one of those people. You're fertile. Drew looks at you and you're pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we say. Um, And so Nicholas was, he was conceived pretty much right away. And um, that was in 2000 and December of 2007. So then shortly after that, the world changed, the markets crashed, jobs became very hard to come by. The housing bust. Yes, and yes, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. And so those raises that we were counting on never came. Mm. My maternity leave was unpaid uh, mostly. So I had to exhaust all of my paid time off and then take unpaid time. Um, Did you have to dip into savings or borrow during that time? We didn't really have savings. Um, it was just one of those things. We took Timothy out of childcare while I was on maternity leave. And that was enough to kind of float us through. So we did that, you know, we scraped, scraped by, and then I went back to work, you know, a brand new baby in daycare, a 12 week old baby in daycare. He was sick all the time, always with an ear infection. And of course the regular amoxicillin never worked. So we would end up like in the emergency room, which was a hundred dollars. Then we would end up with um, a different prescription, which was another hundred dollars. And it was like, every time, like you're worried about your baby, but at the, then it's like, cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. Like I don't have this money in my bank account. (laughs) Kids cost and some it's planned and a lot it's not planned for. Yeah. So that was, that was challenging. And then in addition to that, Timmy was a very like well-mannered baby. He would go to anyone. He didn't care. Um, he pretty much slept through the night. Once I went to work when he was eight months old, Nicholas was a different story. He only ever wanted me, never wanted anybody else. So, and he would have, um, like he would get overstimulated when we were around my family because there are a lot of us were really loud. And so it was just a very different experience having him as a baby than it was having Timmy as a baby, even though we were a little bit older and a little bit more stable, it was very different. Isn't that wild? And you never know, like I've I've talked to people who (laughs) it's like the first and the second were like a dream. And the third one, 
everything that could go wrong went wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this whole time we're like, okay, still in a few months, Timmy will be in kindergarten and then that childcare cost will go down. And so we just have to get, we just have to make it to that point. And then we accidentally got pregnant again. For the first and third, we're, we're happy accidents. <laughs> and of course you said, well, we're, we're going through yes. with this and we have to adjust or, or, or something, our schedules or financially, or what did you do? Yeah. Well, I will say that because of the child that Nicholas was, Drew was convinced we are done with this. We are not doing this again. <laughs> um, and so when I realized that I was pregnant, I was like, oh, like, how is he going to, how is he going to take that? I was, I think I was more scared to tell him about Katie than I was about Timmy. <laughs> <laughs> because by then he knew what he was in for, right? You know, when we were 18, 17 years old, he had no idea what having a baby meant or, you know. So now, now you're 24 ish. Uh, 23. I had her just before my 24th birthday. So did you miss your period and go, uh Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you went to the doctor and then, yeah, I mean, for, for me, I'm pretty in touch with my body. Um, and so I usually knew like right before I missed my period actually, um, and pregnancy tests now are more advanced than they used to be. Um, and so I always had a very, very early, uh, detection, the, yeah, I guess we could say yeah. your body alarms going off. Yes. And, yeah. Um, but financially now we're like, shit. Like now, because we could barely afford the one in daycare and one in full-time care and one in before and after care, like the, the whole time I'm pregnant, I'm like, what are we going to do? Like, what are we going to do? We cannot afford this. Like we, I was making more money than Drew at the time. So like me quitting my job and staying home with the children was not an option. Cause you need, you need both incomes. I mean, you have three kids so there's there's food there's clothing there's mm -hmm. uh, you know health medicine and yep. even without daycare and then there's still your mortgage mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and so what ended up happening was we ended up paying a neighbor to watch the kids for us for a while while you were off at work while while i was at work um and so again when i coming to maternity leave it was still unpaid. Um, so I think by now I had like for the first one, I had like three weeks paid in full. And then the second three weeks was 60%. And then the rest was unpaid. Um, by now, I think I had like four or five weeks paid in full. And then the rest of the six weeks was 60%. And then the rest of that was unpaid. What was up with these companies? Why were you working there? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, at the time that was pretty competitive. Oh, okay. Um, and you have to remember at the time you couldn't, you could not, um, if I were to change jobs already pregnant, I wouldn't have been covered at all. Um, not by my health insurance, not by the, um, I would have had FMLA, which is completely unpaid. That's all I would have had. I wouldn't have qualified for any maternity leave. I bet you if men were the ones to get pregnant in this world, we'd have paid maternity leave. We'd have paid childcare. We'd have so much paid for <laughs> Yeah. I mean, we've come so far. We still have a really long way to go, but we were having this conversation the other night because Drew works for a global company now. And so they have full paternity leave, 12 weeks, hundred percent paid. And he was like, man, that would have come in handy. And I was like, I 
would have murdered you if you got 12 weeks paid in full and I'm sitting here having to go back to work after six weeks. That would, oh, Uh, that. (laughs) So true. (laughs) But you got through it. Did. We racked up a lot of credit card debt. Um, a lot. And, you know, we're what we lived in a townhome at the time and we were watching all of our neighbors one by one, just turning their keys back into the bank. One by one, one by one, one by one. So uh, you're, I'm sorry, you're owning and paying mortgage at this time mm-hmm. or still renting? We were, we owned, we owned. So all of our neighbors are, you know, turning their keys into the bank and basically like starting over somewhere else. We were calling our mortgage company, like, is there anything we can do to like lower our payments? Like, what what can we do? And they're like, well, we can't do anything until you miss like four or five payments. And we were like, we can't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I thought you were going to say, oh, that gave us some breathing room. So we missed a few. (laughs) Well, and looking back, if I knew then what I know now, we would have totally missed those mortgage payments and taken them up on whatever plan they had um, because we would have been way better off in the long run. But at the time it was like, how irresponsible can we be to just not pay our mortgage? Like we can't do that. So yeah, we, we really messed up our credit for quite a while there. But you did what you had to do. I mean, what? How many options did you have? So yeah. And then, but you you made it somehow. I mean, you made it through. And the fact you're all still together, you know, <laughs> <laughs> your kids are, you know, are are doing are they doing well in school? How are they? Yeah, they do pretty well. Um, you know, again, I don't want to brag, but we're we're that family that the teachers just can't tell you how much they enjoy your kids and we just don't get tired of it, you know? Um, I love that. I'm sure. <laughs> so, you know, they, they have their strengths and their areas of opportunity, but overall they're, they're generally nice, nice kids. Now, aside from all of this, I mean, that's, that's a fantastic story and amazing and kudos to both of you for making it through. What problems along the way have come up with parenting and how did you deal with them? So many. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Um, It's never ending, right? So I would say initially, um, like I said, I was the oldest of five. So like changing diapers, rocking, crying babies, like all of that was and is still very second nature to me. Drew is an only child. He doesn't, all of his cousins, he only has a handful of them, but they're all his age. Like he had no experience with babies. Um, and so that made me the, the primary parent and he was, he was there. He was as supportive as he knew how to be, but it led to a lot of frustration between the two of us. Right. Um, you know, he's always handing this baby back to me and I'm like, I just need, I just need a couple of minutes. Like, please, um, so there was a little bit of, you know, I was the primary parent. I felt like Drew could have done a little bit more as far as like consoling a, a crying baby. Um, then it was like the toddler stage and toddlers, if you're familiar at all, they are terrorists. Um, <laughs> and okay. it's, it's, sorry, I'm just, just to cut in a second, but it sounds like off the bat, you know, we, we never 
know why we're going through something until later in life when it comes into play and we're like, oh, thank God I went through that because now I have the skills. So it's kind of a good thing that, I mean, with your parents having divorced and you having to be a, a mom, a parent at a very early age, gave you these skills that you needed mm -hmm. as an, uh, a young adult. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I was very, very grateful for that. And, you know, in addition to, you know, my own family, I was like the babysitter on the street. Every time someone wanted like even just an afternoon to themselves, I, I was always, you know, the first phone call. So, but anyway, yeah, we get to the toddler stage and, you know, whenever you're talking about children, at, no matter what age, consistency is key, right? So they need the routine. They need, um, they need to know what the rules are. The rules need to be communicated ahead of time. Like you need to be proactive. Um, these are, these are things that meant a lot to me and drew was a little bit more reactive. Um, he again, didn't have experience. And so he would, he would kind of default and say, well, I don't, I don't do babies. I don't do toddlers. Um, and so one day I was like, when, when do you step in then? Like, do you do kids that are like seven to 10 years old? Do you do kids that are teenagers? Like, am I ever going to get help from you? Or am I always going to have to do this by myself? And that wasn't really fair of me to say, because I wasn't truly doing it by myself. Um, but it felt like it. Right. Um, so there was conflict between he and I, when it came to the, the children and what they needed and how they were being disciplined. And then in addition to that, because I was so young, I had so much anxiety around, um, like if my kids were to misbehave or not do something correct, not only, you know, are people judgmental just anyway, but, but even more so of me and their situation. Um, and so whenever we were in public, that was really a big challenge for me. I like if, if they would start to like be loud or, you know, just be kids at all, I would be like, oh, we need, like, we need to stop this right now. Like they were not allowed to really misbehave. And how did you deal with that? Or did they get punished and, uh, timeouts or just a talking to, or. Yeah, it depended on the situation. I was a big believer in removing them from the situation. And so a lot of times what that meant was whatever kid and myself would go, if we were in a restaurant, we would go out and sit in the car and we would have time out out there. Um, and then we would come back inside. I mean, good for you because I have witnessed that a lot in restaurants where the, t the t family, the kids are just uncontrollable and I'm like, what do you, what do you do? How do you deal with that as a, a parent? So, I mean, that's, that's something that's, that's good. Removing them from the situation until they calm down. Right. And then going back. And again, that would lead to my meal being cold, like, and Drew's in there having a grand old time, like eating his nice hot, hot <laughs> dish, you know, <laughs> so frustrated. So you, um, but we ended up Okay. Oh, no, so it, it sounds like you took the driver's seat as a parent. Mm -hmm. Would that be fair? That would be that would be fair early on for sure. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And um, and so at, oh, go ahead. Do you think through you he learned how to become a better parent, dad? 
watching you and seeing what you did? So we did take a parenting class together eventually. Um, when Timmy was in kindergarten, the school was offering one for free. Um, and so we went there and that was very helpful. I think that should be required of all parents um, because there's a lot that we don't know. And, you know, the way we were raised isn't necessarily uh, the best sometimes. And we only know what, what we know. Yeah. You and I had talked about this previously, that there are so many books on parenting and you could talk to other parents, but nobody knows until, you know, what are you going to do until you're in the situation and the type of person you are and the type of parenting you had. And you're right. Like what our parents did, it's from another generation and what we know now and what we do now is different. And you're just, figure, you're just figuring it out as you go along, hopefully for, for the best for you and for your kids. Yeah, I would say for the most part, when it comes to anything that comes down to our values, we pretty much agree. Um, it's more the like day to day, like how much soda is acceptable and like those things that really don't matter. And so I've had to learn to just, if Drew says they can have five cans of soda with dinner, then great. Enjoy you know? <laughs> <clears throat> so that I was going to ask you that about, you know, there's so much about, you know, the parents being on the same page, but there's in reality, a lot of times they aren't and the kids go and play the parents off of each other, you know, because they're going to get a yes mm -hmm. from this parent for this thing. And they're going to get a yes from this parent for that thing. Go ask your dad, go ask your mom. Well, why did you say that? Well, I, why did you say that? Right? <laughs> so it's funny that you say that because they are at that age. Well, they, they've always kind of been that way, but now the stakes are higher than when they were toddlers. Right. Um, and so now if they come to one of us and we're not comfortable making the decision, we'll say like, Oh, go ask your dad or go ask your mom. And then if that person says, what did your mom say? Or what did your dad say? Then it's like, okay, we need to connect and we'll get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Kids, they like, work you right they just work your bow with oh they're manipulative yeah every angle that they can f figure out no no you go try no you go try try this try that <laughs> oh yeah that like depending on what they're trying to do they know like which kid to send to which parent for right. the result that they want right isn't it's that amazing wild they're mm -hmm. like they're like a little like seal team <laughs> they're like <laughs> They have little walkie-talkies. Okay. Uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> Tango Foxtrot, go! <laughs> <laughs> now, what issues came up with you and Drew with your marriage, and how did you deal with that? Mm -hmm. um, again, so many. Um, so we actually ended up almost divorced twice. Um, so we had a lot to work through. Um, a lot of it comes down to just lack of communication. Um, and when we do communicate, we don't know how, so it's, it can be kind of explosive. Um, and you know, that's not a great environment for either of us or our children. Um, and so that's something that we've really, really had to work on. Did you have a counselor or a therapist? Yes. Lots of them. <laughs> for you. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. And I'll say, you know, 
I had to let go of this idea that marriage was easy or that, you know, marriage is not easy and marriage is not perfect. And it comes in seasons. Like some seasons are just going to be harder than other seasons. And, you know, understanding and like really rooting and grounding yourself in the idea that your partner is not out to get you. Um, you know, I went through a phase where I felt like everything was a personal attack on me. Um, you know, and, and understanding that that's not the reality that I'm living in, um, was hard. And, but I I'll say that if you are in a situation where you and your partner just seem to always be at, at, at odds, or, you know, you're creating this kind of unhealthy or toxic environment for either you or your children or both definitely try counseling and both partners have to agree to go. And both partners have to agree to actually do the work because you can sit in counseling five days a week for a year and nothing will change because you have to actually implement what you've learned in order for, you know, things to improve. So your communication improved? Off, yes, I, very much so. I would think that's a huge part of it. And I would also think an another part of it is expectations and letting go of expectations, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Definitely. We went through a phase um, late in the pandemic where I was very anxious, very depressed and denying both of those things. And, you know, we weren't quarantined, but the world wasn't fully open yet. So we were in this weird place where like people were still working from home, kids still weren't going to school, but like sports were available. Um, and so Drew was signing the kids up for all of these sports. And I was like, I'm spread too thin. Like we can't be on every boat sailing. Like you and I don't have time. We don't have to get time together with the kids. Um, and he was like adamant, like this is important. And that drove a really big wedge between us for a while. And we had to come to an agreement where like, what is reasonable? How, how many activities is reasonable? Um, and once we agreed on that, we had to intentionally make sure that we were carving out time for he and I. So whether it was um, lunch out on our own on Friday afternoons or like an actual date night or just like locking the kids out of a room so that we could have some like interaction, those things in addition to like our own counseling that he and I and my own counseling to deal with my own issues, all of that together was kind of what got us through that time. I would think uh, those are very important two things that you brought up is managing your kids activities because in this day and age there's a million things that they could sign up for and we don't you don't want to deny them but at the same time uh it's uh, be you become a chauffeur right you don't want to be a chauffeur seven days a week and even if you figure out carpooling with with other parents uh you know, you have to balance that. And then the other important thing is date night, is that you take time, I believe at least once a week, where you shut everything off, shut everyone out, and just focus on each other. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be, you know, out and about or spending any money. It can literally be like the kids go to bed early and you two play a game. Or my thing is like sitting 
in front of the TV and watching a movie or a show together, that is not date night. That does not count. Good for you. Um, yeah, for him, that counts. For <laughs> right? me, I'm like... <laughs> Get a pizza. Let's put on some movie or some wrestling. <laughs> yeah. No, where you're actually mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. engaged with each other. If it's a game or playing cards or doing an activity, I don't know, exactly. painting a room. Yep. You got a head on your shoulders, missus. <laughs> Do you go by Mrs.? I better be careful. I do. I do. <laughs> um, oh, so I was going to ask you that. How did COVID, I mean, you, you, you got into it, and maybe we can get into it a little more, is how COVID affected the family dynamics. I mean, were all the kids home from school, doing school online? Were you and Drew able to work from home? Did everyone, did it just get claustrophobic and everyone was just like, Arr. <laughs> I was already working remotely full-time. So that didn't change for me. Drew was able to work from home full-time. He actually goes back to the office for the first time next week. And the kids were also working um, virtual school. Before the pandemic, we were hosting um, an intern for the Spanish immersion program in our house. So it's kind of like She's not a student, but she's also not a paid teacher. And so she needed somewhere to stay for free and eat for free because the salary that they pay them is really just for fun stuff. And so leading up to the pandemic, she's watching what's going on in Europe and what her family's going through. And she's like, she's very anxious and, you know, experiencing the, these things. And Drew and I were very naive. We were like, that's not going to happen here. They can't put us in lockdown. That's not going to happen here. That like, we're the United States of America. That doesn't happen here. She decided mid-March um, that she wanted to stay here in quarantine with us back when we thought it was a two-week ordeal. All of the other girls decided that they wanted to leave. And she was like, no, I really, I really like it here. I don't want to leave. I'm going to quarantine with you guys. And we were like, okay, great. And then the next day, she got a phone call bright and early in the morning saying that the borders were closing. And that she had to be basically on the next flight out. And so that day, Drew and I both had to take off from work and pack up all of her stuff and, you know, find her a flight that was direct because they all had layovers in like all of these places. And we were like, Christina, you cannot have a layover because what if you get stuck wherever? Like once you're on that plane, you need to go straight to Madrid. That is it. So I was very chaotic. And again, it was super early in the pandemic. So like, we got them a flight out of New York city and we are in Wilmington, Delaware. So it's only about two and a half hours from here. It's not very far, but at the time, New York city was a hot spot. Nobody knew what was going on and there were all kinds of rumors. Everything was moving very quick. And so we decided that Drew is going to drive all the girls to New York city. He packed a, a bag of like some clothing and some toiletries because we were like, what if you're there in the bridges closed? Like all of these wild, like crazy thing. Like what if you get up there and you can't get home? And so that was very traumatic for our whole family. Like Christina had lived with us um, from August until mid-March. So she was very much part of our family. She was, you know, a, a big sister to our kids. Um, she hung out with Drew and I for adult time a lot. Very, very integrated. So it was like losing a family member without any sure um, warning. And she wasn't an au pair program. No, 
Yeah. So my daughter is part of a Spanish immersion program at school where they spend half of their day in a Spanish speaking only classroom. And so for the full-time teachers, they bring um, native Spanish speaking teachers. So a lot of them come from Madrid or Mexico, Puerto Rico, some of them. So they, they come from all over. Um, so they have one main teacher that's here on a contract, usually about three years. And then in addition to that, they require extra support. So they have an internship program and it's paid, but not really. Not very well. Yeah. So they definitely wouldn't be able to, you know, provide for themselves for the school year. And so they asked families to volunteer to, to house host them. Um, and it's actually very strict. Like they are not to babysit kind of thing. Um, that's not what they're here for. Right. Yes. So, but I mean, for us, they've become part of the family and it just becomes like they eat dinner with us. They, they will hang out with the kids. It's not right. That's not someone who's just living in their room. And it's like, we got this, we're being nice, but (laughs) we don't know what goes on with this person. Like they're integrated into the family. Very much, very much. Yeah. So that was, you know, I, everyone had a traumatic experience leading into the pandemic. Um, for, for us, that was ours. And then, you know, it was, you know, Delaware said right away, you guys are inside until April or May. So we were one of the first ones to acknowledge that this was going beyond two weeks, you know, everyone else eventually caught up. And, you know, in the beginning, I was like, Oh, my God, I can't believe this. But you know, everyone else just kept extending theirs by two weeks. So I think looking back, I do prefer knowing ahead of time that we're inside for three months rather than, you know, just extending it every time you get close to the two week mark. Nobody knew it just kept going two weeks and then by a month and then Mm -hmm. by two months. And then finally it was like, oh, we're not getting outside for a year and a half. It was just like, let's call everything (laughs) off. Yeah. And so we, you know, everyone, I would get so frustrated because everyone was on, it seemed, I don't want to generalize, but it seemed like when I was on social media, everyone was like, oh, I'm enjoying all of this extra time with my family. And, you know, everybody's baking bread and doing puzzles and like doing all of these like really cool things. And I'm over here like, but when do you sleep? Because I'm over here. I've got three kids that need my help in school and they would come to Drew or, or me, but his job, like he needs to be available, but doesn't necessarily have to like, his job is more like flexible in different ways than my job is flexible. (laughs) And so I was feeling like I couldn't get my work done during the day. And so then I was logging in at night. And so my work day was like wildly extended. I felt like I wasn't being a good employee, but also I wasn't being a good mom. And at the same time, like my family, like all of my siblings and and my mom, they all live within like five minutes of me and we get together very regularly. So to not have that was very largely impactful as I'm sure a lot of people can understand that. And, And in addition to that, everyone else was going through their own shit And in my family, you know, when there's nothing you can do to fix something, you just, you're present and that's how you, you you show your support. And so everyone else is dealing with their own stuff that's going on and I'm not able to support them in the way that I'm used to supporting them. And so I just feel this overwhelming sense of helplessness, right? We finally get to the summertime. The world starts to open up a little bit and, um, you know, we have some escapes. Wait, you're talking about this past summer summer of 2020 last yep okay, um last. Okay. so the kids are are done school that's great 
summer is here. There's still no camps that are open or anything like that. So now I have these kids are at home and they're just like wasting away. Their brains are rotting because they're on, you know, their phones and video games and very little interaction with other children. And I'm just like, I have so much guilt about that. And then about July of 2020 is when around here, sports started to become a thing again. So the kids, they had to wear their masks, but they were allowed to interact outside. And so that's when things started to pick back up again. And I was like, like, I want, I want them. They need it. The kids, they do need it. But at the same time, like, when am I supposed to work? When am I supposed to like, somehow we're all locked in this house, but we're not spending any time together. So we're not able to enjoy any of it. And everyone else is just enjoying all of this extra free time. And, and what the hell is going on over here that we're not, we're not able to participate in that. (laughs) (laughs) What are we getting? Why aren't we baking bread? Why aren't we playing the guitar around the fireplace and singing songs? Exactly. But I've heard from other parents how difficult that was when you have suddenly have two, three, four kids at home all the time, and parents aren't teachers. Unless you've chosen to homeschool your kid, to have your kids home 24-7, they can have play dates, to make sure they're getting into their online class, which then I know that there were technical problems, and then that they're paying attention because they're at home. So your attention is different than if you're in a classroom. And then to make sure they follow through and do their homework. And then because they have to give their send their homework in on email, and then there's I've heard problems there that then the teacher wasn't getting the emailed lesson and so then Mark giving the kid a bad mark and then the parent having to get involved and say, why did you give my kid the bad mark? They did their homework and the teacher saying, I didn't. It's like this, uh, your mind can explode all these new problems that you didn't have before, right? Yeah. Well, and first of all, teachers are superheroes and they're grossly underpaid yeah. and grossly yes. Yes. underappreciated. Um, yes. D- do not come to me talking shit about a teacher because that's not going to end well for you. <laughs> no, no, that's that they had to do that, that pivot online and do online classes. I, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. Teachers are not appreciated or paid. Enough, yeah. So. Um, we had a, a problem with my oldest. He's not one to sit around. Right. And so immediately he was like, I'm going to call uncle Sean, my brother, he owns a business. And he was like, I'm going to see if he needs any help. So we were like, great. Timmy goes to work every day. Then I get a phone call from his teacher in you know mid-April and is like, um, I know that Timothy's been working a lot and you know, you know, it's a pandemic, people are losing jobs. You know, she's like, you know, are you does he have to help like pay bills or something? And I was like, what? No, he just doesn't want to be at home. And she's like, okay, well, he's not turning in his assignments. And I'm like, okay. So I have a conversation with him and I'm like, what is up? Like, we told you that you could do this as long as you did your schoolwork, you've got to do your schoolwork. Like there's, you can, so you're done working for this week. So now uncle Sean is down a worker. So now he's being punished because you have to be punished. I said, what is going on? He's like, mom, I just don't have any motivation to get it done. And I was like, I, I understand that. Like, I understand that. But at the same time, I was like, what am I going to, like, I'm not going to punish you. Like, what am I going to do? Take your phone? Like your only access to the outside world. That's cruel and unusual. I'm not going to do that. Just, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. take off the rest of this week from work, get caught up with your schoolwork and we'll move on from here. And that's what we did. And he ended up actually really thriving last year with remote learning and, and hybrid learning and all of that. He, he 
figure out a way. Yeah, he made a nice little routine for himself. He did well. Good, good. Yeah, because the the kids too. I mean, they it's not just on the teachers and the parents. They've got to figure it out. And like, what is going on with my world? Yeah. Yeah. And even still, like they're all back in school full time, um, but it's still not the same. Um, You know, there's all kinds of adjustments that they're they're having to make still, but they don't have a choice. You're here. You got through it. But what was during COVID and even now, what is your self-care? How do you look after Megan? So during COVID, there was no such thing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, I am a runner and I'm also a group fitness instructor. And so the gym's closed. So, so I wasn't doing that. And to teach group fitness via zoom was just not, didn't quite do it for me the same way as like a in-person class. I, so I, I wasn't running. I wasn't taking any classes. I wasn't teaching any classes. And that's my primary form of self-care generally. Why I wasn't running. I don't know. Depression. <laughs> Um, so that was that. In, in addition to that, um, during the pandemic, I was not like even general basic care, right? We weren't getting up and taking showers and getting dressed in new clothes every single day. That was like a twice a week, three times a week type of thing. Yeah, I I, I think my longest was four days in the same clothes without a shower. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. <laughs> I know it's just, you know, but that's, that was what everybody else was doing too. I mean, we weren't alone in that. What else was I not doing during the pandemic? I, oh, meal prep. I was not doing that. I essentially was doing the bare minimum in every area of my life throughout all of lockdown, which is why I spiraled so far down into my depression. Now on the other end of that, I am like, I have things that must get done every single day and they're not pretty. Like for me, self-care is not like this cool thing or this like treat or this like really beautiful experience that you can post on social media and brag about. Right. To me, self-care is like unsexy things that require discipline that suck now, but you're going to, you know, appreciate it later, or you're going to feel better for it later. It's the the basics, the upkeep. Mm-hmm. Yep. So depression, is that something that you've always had? And what level is it at? And do you take anything for it? And how, how do you deal with that? Mm-hmm. Great question. Um, I definitely can pinpoint times in my life where I experienced depression and didn't acknowledge it you know, postpartum and otherwise, there was a time about five years ago, I experienced real bad anxiety. And I finally went to my general doctor and was like, you know, I just burst into tears. Like I have anxiety. I need help. Give me something. Um, and she gave me her little, you know, her tests, like check boxes, like how often, how often do you do this? How often do you not do this? Um, and she came back and she was like, Megan, you have full blown like clinical depression and general anxiety. And this is the first time that someone has said this to you. Mm -hmm. Mm. And I was like, Oh, depression. That's not what I expected to hear. And so I, I took the medicine that she prescribed and things got better for a while, but in general, I just felt like I wasn't able to experience any emotion really. Um, so I wasn't like, having panic attacks, which was great, but I also wasn't like really enjoying anything still. 
And so after about a year, I contacted my doctor and was like, listen, this isn't working. Um, the medication you mean? The medication is not working. I think I've got all of these like basic self-care things under control enough that I'd like to try weaning off of my medicine. And she agreed, like, that's fine. So we, we create a plan to wean off of the medicine. And that was about six months prior to COVID. <laughs> so it was really poor timing, <laughs> really poor timing. Um, and so my husband during the pandemic, he kept asking me, like, I, I need you to call your doctor. I need you to get back on medicine. And for me, what he was saying was, you are not well, you need, you need to be medicated. Like you need to be back on your medicine or you need to do something. Um, and what I heard, this goes back to the communication that we were talking about earlier. What I heard is you are too much for me and I don't want to be around you unless you water yourself down. That's what I heard. Mm. And so I was like, well, then we can't be together because I refuse to live my life as a shell of myself so that I can be tolerable for you. Mm. And so again, we ended up back in therapy. <laughs> Look, at least nobody just like packed their bags and walked out. <laughs> That uh, I need space or you need space. Yeah. Um, and so I first started with a, a therapist of my own. And after a few sessions, I loved her. She was great. She had, you know, she's about my age. She had kids. They were a little bit younger than mine, but like she knew in general, she could relate to the things that I was talking about in therapy. Um, and I think that that's really important to note because you can, We've had experiences with a therapist that was, you know, older. If you did have kids, they, they weren't anywhere close to being children still and just could not, could not relate at all to anything that we were talking about and gave some pretty not great advice as a result. And so I would say, if you end up in a situation like that, get a new therapist, don't quit on therapy altogether. But anyway, I love you can shop for you can shop around to start. Exactly. And then if you, you are with one and then it's just not working, you can't you can fire your therapist and get a new one. Yeah. yeah. And there's I mean, you can just ghost them or you can say to them, hey, this isn't working. I need someone that, you know, has more ex experience in this other area. Can you do you have a referral? And a lot of them are happy to do that because they want what's best for you, too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the ones who take it personally need therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I have a few <laughs> sessions with her and she's, she starts to ask, like, have you, have you considered any, you know, medication? And I was like, I'm not doing that. You know, I, I felt like, and I knew better, but still I was being so stubborn. I was like, I don't need medicine. Like I'm strong enough to do this on my own. I can figure this out. I have you now. She was gentle about it, but she was like, okay, well, being on medicine doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you and it doesn't have to be forever. And, um, but also for me at the time, I was such a mess mentally. Like I was, I was having consistent panic attacks several times a week. Again, I could not regulate my emotions just in general. And I have had a bad experience being on medicine. So I was like, I don't have time to do an experiment on my brain right now. Like I, I can't end up worse off than I am now. So I'm just not going to go down that road. That's great. And sometimes it's trial and error. What works for one person is not going to work for another. You have to be, and you have to be careful. So I worked with her for about 
three or four months before she finally convinced me to go see a doctor that could prescribe some medicine. And the reason I agreed is because it was a doctor that she works with. And so I gave the two of them permission basically to talk about me and share my medical information. And for me, that was important because I felt like, you know, the last time I had tried medicine, it was just a doctor that asked me a couple of questions and just wrote me a prescription based on the symptoms that I had. Whereas now I have this team behind me. This doctor asked me a lot of questions about the prior medicine that I was on. Um, by now I've, you know, I've been on medicine, so I've talked about it. So now I know that there are family members of mine that are also taking some medicine. Um, and it turns out that a lot of that has to do with your genetics. So if there's a medicine that works for, you know, your mom or your dad or somebody else, it's likely that it will work for you too, which I was unaware of. So I was able to share that information with her. Um, and then based on, you know, all of this extra stuff outside of what I was actually experiencing as a symptom, she was able to recommend a medicine for me. I, I completely identify, um, and there's a lot of mm -hmm. us in the in the world that deal with depression and take something. You know, I'm one of those people, and also I have mm -hmm. to uh, pay attention yeah. to or regulate myself and get in touch with my doc when my doctor has prescribed too much, and I have to tell him this is making me crazy. I wasn't crazy before; I was depressed. And let's go incrementally. So I, I get where you're coming from. Um, and the thing with these kinds of medicines is that they don't just, you don't just take it and it works, right? It's not like Tylenol or ibuprofen. Like you have to take it for a month, two months, three months before you can even tell if it's working. Um, and so that's a little bit frustrating too. For me, what ended up happening was I went on the medicine. I did notice a bit of a difference mm -hmm. pretty much right away. Um, and then I leveled out and still wasn't like super thrilled with where I was. And so we upped the dosage. Um, and so I'm still on that dose. I take my medicine every single day. Doctors, in my experience, don't tell you like, here's a medicine. It's helpful for your symptoms. And you should also probably journal and you should also probably go to therapy. And you should also make sure that you're going outside every day. And you should also make sure that you're moving your body. Like it's, it's a full circle thing. Like you can't just take a pill and expect it to solve all of your problems. Like you also still have to put in work. And I know that people don't want to hear that, but that's my experience. You know what? I would rather not take anything and just do all those other things. But for some of us, all those other things still aren't enough. And, you know, that was the story that I was telling myself, um, prior to getting back on medicine this time was that, you know, I'd listen to podcasts and everybody was like, Oh, we're all depressed. Like the world is hard right now. Um, you know, drink your water and, you know, exercise, you'll be fine. And so I was like, yeah, I'm going to drink my water and I'm going to exercise. And I'm going to be okay. But I was not brushing my teeth. Do you think I was going for a run? Like, <laughs> no, hell no. <laughs> Oh, no. I mean, the world changed. Our lives changed. We changed. I get it. But again, you know, talking to you, I mean, to me, you're just, you have a lot of strength, a lot of determination, a lot of awareness, and your head on your shoulders, and you're just a joy to talk to. Oh, thank you. <laughs> So for those of you listening, Megan has her own podcast. Podcast. It's been uh, on for uh, it's 
40, you're on episode 41, right? Yep, 41 just went live today. And do you you do it once a week? Release an episode about once a week? Once a week, sometimes twice a week, but... And sometimes it's just you talking and sometimes you have a guest. I listened to, I checked in with about three today. Uh, They seem to all be about 20 to 30 minutes right? Yep, so give that's or take. A, yeah. they're very digestible. And it's called the No BS Mama. I love that. <laughs> Thank you. How did you come up? How did you come up with that? Uh, so the podcast went through a little bit of a rebrand. Um, it was initially unlocking your ambition, because I feel like um, a lot of us just kind of accept the life that we were handed and just accept that, you know, our job sucks, our marriage sucks, or, you know, everything sucks. Um, and so initially I was like, you know, you don't have to accept some of these things. Like you can be really creative about the experiences that you have and the life that you live and, and what you we have a choice yourself. about everything. Mm-hmm. We don't choose what happens to us, but we choose how we react and what we do with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how the podcast kind of started, but my, my target audience that I wanted to speak to was primarily mothers. And I, you know, I decided that, well, I learned that the podcast episodes that I released that had to do more with like very mom specific content or mental health, um, those episodes were always performed better than other episodes that I did. Um, and so I took another podcasting course. So I took a podcast course to get me started. And then I took level two from the same person um, about a year later. And this was much more personalized. Um, So I met with her and she was like, your content's great, but like, it's hard looking at your podcast, like to know who it's for or like really what it's about. Um, So you need to be like really specific in your title and with your cover art, like someone needs to know within the first five seconds, if this is for them or not. And so I sat back and I was like, okay, what, what can we do here? So I I brainstormed a little bit and I came up with a few options. I forget what the other, what the other couple were, but I actually put it out to my audience on Instagram. You'll learn if you connect with me, I, I ask for feedback from my audience a lot. So they helped me pick the title of my uh, podcast and then also the cover art itself. I designed a few and then they helped me narrow it down and pick what, what I should go with. I, I read this early on in my, in my research and that that is like a thing to, to do. Mm-hmm. Just put it out to people that your, your, your name, your, your colors, your, your, your branding, yep. your, ta- your tagline. Yeah. And so I was disappointed because my favorite cover art was like the bottom of the list for my followers. And I was like, oh man, I really <laughs> like that one. <laughs> well, we don't always have to do what they say, but I get it. <laughs> now, what is toxic positivity and how does How does it affect you? How do you deal with it? So in general, I like to look on the bright side of things. I like to have a pretty positive outlook on life and situations and circumstances. There there is a point where telling someone to be positive about a situation is kind of damaging. Um, For example, if, you know, some of the worst situations that I can think of where um, a friend experienced a miscarriage. And she was told by someone that she was pretty close to who I'm sure meant well, that, um, 
it could be worse. You could have had the baby and then the baby could have died. Um, or, you know, it could have been worse. That's the bright side. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and people, people don't always intend to come Mm -hmm. off the way they come off or sound the way that they sound. They're trying to be helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, but to tell a cancer patient, like it could be worse. Like you're doing great. It could be worse. Like, no, (laughs) it's allowed to suck. This sucks. And that's okay. And that's what is is hard for some people mm-hmm. to just ex- accept, allow a person to feel what they're feeling mm-hmm. and sit with that, let them sit with that, but also take it as well and accept that that's where they're at. Like, you know, I know that there's a person in my life I'm very close to and they don't like seeing me depressed or mad. And they they tell me, you know, not to be like that. And I can't get mad at them because their experience of life is a certain way Mm -hmm. and they want to see me happy. So it's hard for them to see me this way, but it's also hard for them to just let me be and have my my moment, you know? And it's it's so important to let people, sometimes they just, we need to be with someone and we need to share with someone. We don't want their feedback. Mm-hmm. We don't need to look at at, the, at that moment at the bright side. Mm-hmm. We just need them to be with us and allow us to be. Yeah. And in addition to that, you know, we can do it to ourselves. I mm-hmm. did it when I was, you know, experiencing my depression. You know, I live a pretty good life. My kids are very healthy. Um, I have a husband who loves me. I have, you know, a house to live in. I'm always fed. Um, and so when I was chronically sad, I would beat myself up about it. Like, what the hell is wrong with you? You have nothing to be sad about. Um, And that's not helpful, right? Because you can't control depression. Um, There are things that you can do to help yourself and it's not okay to stay there forever. But um, some days do just suck and it's okay to let it suck. It doesn't matter that other people have it worse than you or, you know, that people that you love or in, you know, much, you know, much more challenging circumstances than you are. That doesn't change your situation or the way you feel about your situation. And that's okay. Okay. We're going to get into a, a little bit of a fun round Okay. now. Okay. I'm going to take it easy <laughs> on you now. What are some of the best decisions you've ever made? Uh, number one would be marrying my husband for sure. Um, number two would be a pretty recent decision. We bought an RV and did a three-week uh, cross-country road trip with our three kids and two dogs. That was the and best. <laughs> was it everything that you wanted it to be and more? Um, yes, it was, actually. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Very cool. Um, wouldn't trade that experience for the world. Um, another top for me would be hosting. We hosted two Spanish interns. So we have two daughters in Spain right now. I would say any time that I have like trusted my gut or believed mm. in you know, making intuition. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. It's always yeah. right. Yeah. Right? It's <laughs> sometimes and my mind is just like, but it doesn't make sense. But mm-hmm. it's always right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to make sense. Yep. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Uh, this is a fantasy question. Okay. All right. If you weren't married and you didn't have kids, what would you be doing? Yeah. 
You know, sometimes I think about it. If I had not gotten pregnant when I did and, you know, my life didn't turn out this way. I often wonder, though, if I would have graduated from college or if I would have partied a little too hard. <laughs> um, so there's there's that's one outlook. The other one, I like to think that um, I would have traveled a lot, a lot. Nice. Yeah. Now, what are some of your best qualities or attributes and strengths? Mm hmm. I would say some of my best qualities include just my resilience, I guess, mm. and my ability to be creative in less than desirable circumstances. I would say by far that is my strength. Awesome. What quality do you think is most overrated? I'm going to give you, I, I looked this up because I was curious. Okay. Uh, so I'll just give you some ideas. Honesty. Tact. I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we could stop there. <laughs> That's awesome. That's why that was the number one answer. <laughs> <laughs> that was number, uh, well, they're going backwards from number 10. So I'll tell you, it was honesty, okay. tact, persistence, being good with children. <laughs> <laughs> um, integrity, being a hard worker, being a team player, respect for authority, likability and blind faith and then they have a paragraph to explain why they felt these were just yeah. overrated i was like this is, this is fascinating yeah Very honesty all right um wh what are some of your flaws and how do you improve them yeah um i would say that i'm definitely loyal to a fault i will stay in a situation well past you know it being right for me because i'm loyal um, that's a big one. Another big one is my lack of ability to be able to communicate what I need from a situation or from someone, whether that be my partner, my boss, um, you know, the cashier who mm -hmm. didn't give mm -hmm. me the discount that, you know, I thought that I was going to get. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think that that is? And can you have you change that? Yeah, it's something that I'm actively working on for sure. Mm. Um, why that is, I think, is because I'm a helper by nature. And so any kind of um, like anything that could result in any kind of conflict, I just avoid like the plague. I've been like that, too. Uh, and that's putting other people's feelings or in needs before mine mm -hmm. but then that's not being honest about what i'm feeling and what i need mm -hmm. and it can yeah. lead to resentment which yeah. is not good oh totally <laughs> <laughs> oh big time <laughs> uh what uh what quality do you absolutely detest in other people i detest when someone cannot take ownership what is your greatest fear? My greatest fear is that something would happen to one of my children. Hmm. What have you learned that you can share with other women who are dealing with either unplanned or early pregnancy or even just first-time mm -hmm. motherhood? I would say the biggest thing is find a support system, um, whether that is 
a supportive partner or a family or, you know, some churches have some organizations like find a place where you are safe and you have um, someone that you can confide in someone that can give you some advice. Uh, We are not meant, we are not meant to do this alone. And it's really Mm -hmm. easy to feel alone and isolated when you are dealing with things, especially if you're the first one of all your friends to have a baby or the, you know, the first one in your family in a generation to have a baby. Um, it can feel like you're on an Island by yourself and it doesn't have to be that way. Even if you don't live near your family, even if your family is not supportive, um, you know, again, there's churches, there's, you know, the internet can be a really scary place, but it can be a really wonderful place too. Yeah. Um, and yeah. It, it can lead to some additional resources as well. It's it's interesting because from my memory, you know, the person, the first ones to get married, the first ones to get a house, the first ones to have a kid. From the outside, it's like, oh, yeah. wow, you're the first. Oh, my God. Then it's like, oh, I got a lot of catching up or growing up to do. But to hear it from, from that side of it, is, mm-hmm. is very interesting and very revealing. Uh, what are the most important things that you've learned about being married? The most important things about being married that I have learned are that what you say and what someone else hears can be two very different things. <laughs> Contrary to what we were taught growing up, whether that was by <laughs> you know Disney movies or whatever, Um, there, there is no such thing as perfect. There is no such thing as a partner. Who's always going to know what you need and when you need it, you need to ask for those things. Um, you know, it, it it took a long time for me to understand that like Drew cannot read my mind. Like, yeah, we've been together for (laughs) like 20 years almost, but I still need to tell him like, this is what I need from you today or this week. Um, and then it's what he hasn't learned by now. He can't anticipate it. (laughs) (laughs) sometimes sometimes he can but sometimes you have to be very explicit and direct and that's not a fault of your partner it's the reality of being in communication relationship what is there anything else that you would like to impart on any listeners today about you know your experience your message yeah my primary message is to always, always reach out for help if you need it. Um, even if you might think that you don't need it, maybe reach out for help. Um, Mm -hmm. especially professional help, you know, your sister is great. Your best friend Mm -hmm. might be a really good listener, Mm -hmm. but they are not professionals. They can't. And honestly, they might be tired of your shit. You know, you you might need that third party. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. Megan, <laughs> this has been such a joy, really. What I said earlier, just learning more about you. I hope we keep in touch. Thank you. Yes, I'm looking forward to keeping in touch with you. Uh, we're going to say goodbye to the listeners now, and I'm going to stop recording, but don't hang up because we'll chat. Okay. All right. Thanks, thanks for being on Frankly Kevin, part of Everyday Hero Series. Thanks for listening to Frankly Kevin, spending some time with myself and my special guest, Megan Edinger. If you'd like to find out more about Megan and some of the topics she discussed, 
You can find links on her page, Episode 12, The No BS Mama, on the FranklyKev.com website, as well as Apple Podcasts, Anchor.fm, and Spotify. Uh, Please feel free to comment and share. To write a review, go to Apple Podcasts and find the Frankly Kev Podcast page. More episodes can be heard on all these listening platforms mentioned, as well as many others. And if you'd like to help independent artists like myself bring you the content you want to hear, then please go to the donate page at FranklyKev.com. Every dollar counts and your donation is greatly appreciated. Well, thanks for joining us. And remember, live simply, dream big, be kind, love deeply, and laugh often. It may not be original, but it is true. Okay, until next time, take care.